I'm seeing Trevor. <laughs> so, not sure. We are seeing you. Okay, so so it looked like you were pinned on there. So that's great. All right, so we're looking at the events of the end times, trying to keep a perspective that avoids replacement theology and that keeps Israel, the people, and the land central to these prophecies because most of the prophecies of both the Older Testament and the Newer Testament come together in these end-time frameworks. We're also trying to keep from getting the gospel wrong by thinking that we're going to bring about the change in the world through the gospel. The gospel calls us out of the world in anticipation of the kingdom to come and the return of the Lord. Now, I don't have a chart for you this week. That's going to be a little different. But I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. We looked at these verses last week, and I want to tie into that because I'm talking about the wrath of God, not a popular doctrine, uh, but it's one that fits into this um, series and needs to be addressed. So if you'll turn to Revelation 6, beginning at verse 12, uh, it says, uh, When he had broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. Of hair, the moon became like blood, the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll, and it rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. The kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountain, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who will be able to stand? Now last time we looked at the larger picture of the statements of Jesus in the Gospels regarding the end times. And then we looked specifically at this chapter, Revelation 6, and the opening of the scroll with the breaking of the seven seals. This sixth seal addresses the signs in heaven and on earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the sky splitting open, the mountains and the islands shifting in upheaval. And the people begged the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb because the great day of their wrath has come and no one will be able to stand. So today we're going to look at a subject that is both unknown and uncomfortable, the wrath of God. It's important to know and understand that the wrath of God is a major theme and subject in the scriptures. If you search that term, you will find it throughout the scriptures, particularly among the prophets. Both the Older and Newer Testaments speak of it, so we need to know what it is. Now, the Bible speaks of God's compassion, His long-suffering, His patience, His wisdom, His glory. Uh, it also speaks about His wrath. And that's a struggle for many people because they believe that God is love. And in our culture, where love is understood as an emotion more than an action, if God is love, how can he have wrath or anger? In addition, 
Many people uh, in the church believe that anger is a sin. It isn't. But it can lead to sin, so we are told not to be angry, or, or to be angry, but sin not. And we need to understand this more carefully, because God's wrath, as we will see, is toward intentional sin. Now one of the problems in our culture is we've moved from an understanding of a concept of sin, both unintentional and intentional, and replaced it, because of psychology, with conscious and unconscious motivation and the idea of mental health. Now, I'm not saying that mental illness does not exist, but the biblical worldview and the secular worldview about the subject of the mind and uh, what we would call mental illness are very different. Our culture is moving towards the idea that most problems of humanity are about mental health. That's problematic, and it, uh, in some sense, avoids the idea of sin, intentional or unintentional. Don't have time to talk about that now, but back to the God's wrath as being against intentional sin. The words used in the Hebrew and Greek text for the wrath of God are words that describe emotional states such as burning anger and indignation that stems from the action of another person to the point of a behavioral response. And this is where we get confused. Because when humans get angry, it is common for that anger to be inappropriate because we don't fully understand what the other person intends or is doing. We can't really see their intent. We have to infer it from their behavior. Man looks on the outside. God looks on the heart. So we can easily respond with evil intent and action or misunderstand the person and inappropriately respond. So the Bible tells us not to retain our wrath and not to act on it in evil. We're told in Psalms 4.4 to tremble in anger but not to sin. Then it goes on to tell us to meditate in our heart on our bed, which would happen in the evening, and become calm. Paul, quoting this psalm, says to us not to let the sun go down on our anger. If we build it up and act out on our anger, it often becomes sin. So we're told to let that go, even to the point of not taking revenge. We are to leave room for the wrath of God, as it is written in Deuteronomy, and then quoted by Paul, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So then we really need to think about what is the wrath of God. So I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at this subject before we get back to Revelation uh, at the end of this sermon. Uh, but I want you to turn to Romans chapter 2. We're going to pick it up at verse 5. Paul's talking about those who know what is right and what is wrong, and that they, if you're going to preach it, you're going to be judged by it. And he says this, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory, honor, immortality, and eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Now what Paul says here is pretty clear. God, who cannot sin or act inappropriately, does have a righteous wrath that builds up. Waiting for a day of wrath that is coming, a day of divine judgment by the righteous one himself, who will render to everyone according to their deeds, and he will render tribulation and distress to those who do evil. And he will render glory and honor and peace to those who do good. This reward and punishment is to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. And God will be impartial in his judgment of that. So God, so Paul explains that the wrath of God is being held for a day of wrath and the revelation of God's righteous judgment. And the prophet spoke of this coming day of the judgment of God. Now, I don't want to get lost in this, but you guys know this, so I can, I can do it quickly, uh, because we observe the Day of Atonement, which many Christians don't do. The Bible says that Jesus, as the sacrifice, is the propitiation of God, that, and not only for us, but for the whole world. When Jesus entered into the holy place by his own blood, God's wrath was stayed in propitiation for everyone awaiting the chance for what we're supposed to do in response to that atonement. We can't make atonement for ourselves. It is made for us, and we are to afflict, humble our souls. That, in Christian terms, is to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. And God is waiting, staying His wrath in His patience, waiting for all to come to Him in that context. So this is really tied into the holy days that we're coming towards. Now, we live in a time when speaking of anger and judgment and wrath as a response to sin is considered evil and barbaric and unchristian. But the Bible speaks of the wrath of the Lamb. Interesting term. That Lamb is Jesus. Now, I want you... Uh, to see this. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to look at verse 26. Now remember I said that God's wrath comes upon intentional sin. Uh, So let's read this. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve 
who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now this writer to the Jewish believers is in this text is explaining that the judgment of God will begin with God's people. We take this too casually, I fear. If Israel and we Christians can hardly bear the judgment that we will get, which is coming with mercy, what will become of the rest, those who the scripture calls the sons of disobedience? Now I'd like you to turn back again to Romans, this time to Romans chapter 5. Because in the midst of all this talk of wrath, I want to talk about God's grace and mercy and His love. In Romans 5 verse 8, Paul says this, God demonstrated His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This is fantastic. God gave his grace to us even when we were in rebellion and turning. How much more will he give us his love and his grace and his mercy and life when we are all now reconciled to him? So, this is really important. I want to remind you of one thing before we go to Revelation. And that is that before God unleashes his wrath, he seals and protects the servants of Israel. We talked about that in Revelation chapter 7. So I want you now to turn to Revelation 14. We're going to look at uh, 14, 15, and 16. I'm going to try to cover these uh, as best I can in the time I've got remaining. So the uh, verse, chapter 14 of Revelation, beginning at verse 6. John says, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation, and tribe, and tongue, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, and the earth, and the sea, and the springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night, those who worship the beast and his image, and receive the mark on his name. Now look at verses 12 and 13. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write. 
Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Now, the wrath of God is mentioned repeatedly in the book of Revelation. Beginning in chapter 14, and in this passage, we have three angels. The first one preaches the eternal gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. You remember in Matthew twenty-four, fourteen, Jesus, in talking about these say, things, said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. Here it is being proclaimed by an angel. The second angel proclaims that Babylon the Great is fallen. Now we're going to examine this in more detail next week uh, when we look at Babylon the Great. The third angel cries out, if anyone worships the beast in his image, then he's going to drink of the wrath of God and be tormented before the angels in the presence of the Lamb. And they will have no rest. And then he says, but those who have died in the Lord, those martyrs that we've talked about, they will rest from their labors and their deeds will follow them. Why? Because they're doing the commandments of God and they're keeping their faith in Jesus. There is a a warning here. It's reminding us to do that. This chapter then is going to give us a vision and the rest of it, I'm not going to read it, of the reaping of the earth and the grapes are then placed in the winepress of the wrath of God and the winepress outside the city uh, has blood that comes from it up to the level of a horse's bridle for 200 miles. The wrath of God is furious, and it is intense. And what we're going to do is turn to chapter 15, because I want to pick it up there. So John says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues. The word here really doesn't mean plagues. It means blows or beatings, strikes that will happen as God strikes the earth. Seven strikes which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. So these are pretty important for us to understand. We need to see that John is is explaining this. Now he's going to interrupt this, just like he did in chapter 7. And he does that in verses 2 to 4. He says, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image, and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, really important. John interrupts this, just like he did with that 144,000 who were sealed before the harming of the earth. This group he sees are the ones who are victorious over the beast and his name and number. And they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, combining the Torah and the gospel in the great salvation of the Lord. Now we're going to look at these groups that John sees at various times later in this this, uh, 
series. I keep mentioning them because I want you to see the context of where they are, and we will, and you'll then be familiar with them later. So we're going to pick up at verse 5. After these things I looked, and the temple of the ta- tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels who had these seven blows came out of the trump out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chest with golden sashes. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven stripes of the seven angels were finished. Wow. Here we see uh, the temple, the true temple, the one in heaven, opened. These angels come out. They are given the bowls of the wrath of God. And the temple is filled with smoke so that nobody can enter it. This should remind us of when the tabernacle had the glory of God and the priest couldn't enter. And the temple and the priest couldn't enter. Here it is in its fullness when God is fully revealing himself and manifesting himself, no one can approach. So that brings us to Revelation 16, where these bowls are poured out and we get an image of what this wrath of God is that is poured out on those who intentionally sin. And you'll see that in the context of it. I'm going to read this in several sections. not going to... um, go into detail in my explanation, just going to underscore some things so that uh, that you'll have that, trying to watch my time. So we begin with chapter 16 of Revelation, beginning at verse 1 through 7. Then I heard a loud voice in the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out the bowl on the earth. And it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured his bowl onto the sea, and it became like blood of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of the waters, and they became blood. And I heard an angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you. Who was and were, who is and were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar say, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgment. I want you to, to understand something. These first three bowls include sores that go on the people who have the mark of the beast. They will not go on those who are sealed, and they will not go on those who bear the testimony of the Lord. Then the sea becomes like blood, like a dead man's blood, and the creatures of the sea die. And the waters of the earth become blood on the streams. We're reminded that God's wrath is right and just by those who testify to God as this is being poured out. This is not God who's lost his control and now is overreacting. This is God who has been long-suffering and patient, 
not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, who now we reach a point where no one will turn from their sin. And they simply dig in their heels against God. So his wrath is right and just. It is fully deserved because this group will be persecuting and martyring God's people who keep the testimony of Jesus and obey the commandments. And these echo the plagues that were in Egypt. And so I want to remind you that God's wrath will come upon the, the evil ones who intentionally sin, but those who are uh, following the Lord that aren't sealed, they are going to go to prison and go to death. And that's why the, the Spirit and uh, said, uh, blessed are those who die in the Lord. They now rest from their labors. So we're going to pick it up at verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to scorch men with fire. And they were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. So now, this next bowl, the fourth bowl, let me get the fourth and the fifth. Uh, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became dark. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because their pains and their sores, and they did not repent their deeds. I want you to see, as these things are poured out, and the fourth and fifth bowl cause incredible heat and pain and suffering and darkness on the kingdom of that beast. And even in this, they will not turn, but they will blaspheme God. This is beyond Pharaoh in Egypt, who finally is weakening to give in. Uh, these will not give in. They will not buckle because they're associated with the dragon, Satan. And they will hold because this is Satan's last final attack. Now we're going to pick it up at verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And the waters dried up that the way would be prepared for the kings of the east. And I saw out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. They are spirits of demons, performing signs which will go to the kings of the whole earth to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief, Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked, and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together into a place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, really important. This sixth bowl is poured out. The river Euphrates dries up so that kings from the east can come towards the city. John sees the dragon, Satan, the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the little beast, are demon-controlled at this point by Satan so that they can perform miracles and gather the nations of the world for one final battle to get rid of this people of the God of Israel. And that battle is Armageddon. 
in this text, we're given a warning that we must endure. The Lord is coming as a thief in the night. This world will not see him coming in that sense, but we will know that when these things are happening, our redemption draws near. And what does he warn us to do? He warns us that we are to not fall asleep, that is, lose our faith, and not become naked, that is, stop our obedience to the commands of God, that we would be shamed and our nakedness would be seen. This is a very, very important reminder that in the midst of persecution and tribulation by the world, we are not to fear those who can kill the body and can do nothing else, but we are to fear Him who has the power to destroy body and spirit, body and life in Hades, or in Gehenna actually. Now, we're going to get now to the seventh angel, verses 17 to 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man came to be on the earth. So great an earthquake, and it was mighty. Remember, God says, one last time, I will shake the earth. And the great city split into three parts. The cities of the nation fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God. Not remembered for good, but remembered for evil. To give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and every mountain was not found and huge hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Now, this is important. There's an earthquake as God shakes the very foundation of the earth, and the great city Babylon, which we'll talk about next week, split into three parts, and the nations associated with her fall as the judgment of God falls on them. God has remembered, and the wrath that has been building up and building up and building up righteously is being brought on them. And you'll notice again, they simply will not repent. No matter how strong the wrath comes, they will not follow God. This is on intentional sin, not accidental sin. These people know that God is there because he's doing, he's manifesting himself fully. They have the testimony from those that they are killing, and yet they will not turn to God. Now, there is a wrath, a day of wrath coming. It is a day of judgment. It is a day of salvation. It is the day of the Lord. But it will be terrible. And even if we don't fully understand the details, we have enough information to know that we are to keep the testimony of Jesus and obey God's commands throughout our life, no matter what tribulation we may experience. And we are to teach this diligently to our children. And we are not to be assimilated into the world. Now we have to look at this city of Babylon 
because the scripture in Revelation 18 tells us to come out of her. And so we need to look at that, but we're going to do that next time. For now, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then I'll answer any questions that you have. Father, we thank